Cup of tea tales. The times they are a-changing. The strong smell of puberty. Hair, voice, muscle, height, spots and deodorant. From the age of about 13 I entered the most turbulent period of my life up to the present date. The mid-1960s was a time of upheaval anyway. 1966 had just seen England win the World Cup and I managed to get some stamps with England winners on them, which I still have. Sergeant Peppers and the Piper at the Gates of Dawn were released in 1967 and I was just finishing the first year at Roundhay School and in September was in the second year. The change from primary school to secondary was quite marked and I took most of that first year to settle in. I'd heard terrible tales of bullying that happened to new boys but apart from the first day christening of my cap which was the removal by an older boy and the smashing of the enamel badge on the ground. I can't say I ever really experienced any, personally. I'm sure that it did take place, but being quite tall, fairly sturdy and, due to growing testosterone levels, quite feisty, I was left alone. One thing that was very true was that I, and probably most boys, received no preparation for the physical and emotional upheaval that was about to hit us. We weren't totally stupid and noted that older six-formers looked very different to first years. They appeared like men, facial hair, deep voices, long hair and arrogance. The teachers dealt with them totally differently and physically at least they were young men. I was unaware of how childlike they still were mentally or how in many ways men remained so. I'd thought it very unjust that prefects could put you in detention and set lines or similar punishments. I'd railed about this injustice to my mum, but she just said that everything would be fine. And most times it was. School detention was still on Saturday mornings in that first year, but it was changed to Wednesday afternoons by the time I ever got one. There were many rituals and organisational procedures so it took time to settle into Roundy. One of the first was that they allocated as a desk in Holy Joe Pullen's classroom over the boiler house. He instructed us that we could purchase a padlock hasp latch from the workshops and we could fit it to the desks, buy a padlock and keep our books and belongings in them. These were wooden desks and they were quite old. They had a hinged wooden lid and as this was long before lockers, it was the only way to avoid carrying a hundredweight of books and equipment backwards and forwards to school. The desks showed signs of wear and tear, and it seemed like every boy who had used my desk had carved something into its surface. The previous owners had removed their hasps and padlocks to fit onto the new desks. After getting some money from home, I went to buy a hasp and padlock, and with the help of a trusty screwdriver, managed to fit it. Luckily, there were plenty of old screw holes to utilise amongst the initials and names carved deeply. It felt quite grown up having your own lock desk, and within a couple of days everyone had secured their own. Textbooks were issued on a loan basis, and there was the threat of being charged if the book was damaged, which was a bit of a laugh as most were old, well-used and defiled copies but they were stamped with their date of issue and our names recorded along with the book number of each text. 
I've not considered it before, but there appears to be something in the masculine nature that wants to mark their territory, and so initials were carved into almost everything. Desks, cliff surfaces, tree trunks, plaster. Now it is spray cans and marker pens, but then it was carving. Some, I must say, were accomplished carvers and names in fine Roman script were left for posterity. I was never that good but it helped to pass a boring lesson to pull out the compass and get to work adding or improving an earlier piece I'd started. When we ran out of desk space, we'd start on wooden pencil cases, mathematical drawing instrument cases, or our own rulers. As we became more interested in music and bands, their names would appear, and the ex-military rucksacks that were the fashion at the time were emblazoned with bands of the time. The more obscure the band or avant-garde, the greater the kudos. I still remember someone having the doors emblazoned on their bag and I was impressed, even though I hadn't heard of them. The teachers didn't seem to notice the desks, or if they did, didn't care. They would sit perched on their dais, resplendent like black crows in the academic gown, ready to hurl the blackboard rubber at any unlucky boy who drew their attention. Frequently I saw the intended target missed, but some unfortunate neighbour took the full force of the eraser as it struck them with an almost lethal blow. Most rooms were devoid of decoration, and few had any posters, and I never saw schoolwork displayed. Most rooms were a pale green or blue, and the corridor was faded green, I believe. Even the blackboards were green. They were green ground glass, and the theory, we were told, was that they were more restful on the eye. In the science labs they used movable rollerboards, which were the exception. Notes were written, and when the teacher reached the bottom they'd slide the board up, hiding their notes from any student slouch who'd not kept up. Many lessons were spent just copying notes, or even worse, just copying homework instructions. Many teachers took great delight in rubbing out the top of the board when they got to the bottom, and protests were met with a snide comment and a smirk. Some teachers thought they were funny, and we learnt those we had to laugh with when they told what they thought was a joke. Please, sir, can I go to the toilet? Of course you can, was the reply. And when the boy stood to leave the room, Where are you going, boy? I said you could. Not that you may. By the end of the first year, we got used to the routines. We knew how to get new exercise books when they were full, without being charged for removing pages. Knew our way around the school campus and got used to what days we needed, which equipment, such as woodwork aprons, sports gear and so on. As a result, we started the second year with confidence and welcomed the arrival of the new boys. We were the ones christening the new boys' caps now, that we were no longer the little fish, and we moved around the school with a growing swagger. To add to this was the fact that many of us had changed over the summer holidays. The changes came in several ways, and they were hair, voice, muscle and height. These could arrive together individually or in any order, and as we were so ill-prepared, we were not sure if it was normal or not. Certainly my parents had relied on the school to deal with such issues, and it was an area of education that rounded schools certainly failed at. However, 
Within the hidden curriculum, there was a lot of information and misinformation passed around by the boys. I must admit, I would rather have died than had to have a face-to-face -face discussion about the birds and bees with my parents. But I know one or two boys who experienced such a talk. My first recollection of any changes came from going to the pictures with my dad. For some inexplicable reason, I got quite uncomfortable when there were scenes with attractive actresses in the James Bond films or other films. The feelings would go, and I never gave it much thought. The second change I was forewarned about, as I was part of the choir at St Wilfrid's Church. I knew voices would break at about the age of 12, and you had to leave the choir when it happened. Breaking meant that your voice would go deeper and then suddenly higher as your vocal cords thickened. This meant you could no longer control your voice, and you had to leave until your voice settled down. Some boys suffered very badly, but I don't think I did. After a short time, mine just settled down to the timber it has now. After saying this, voices still change over time, and mine is probably a little deeper than it was. An example is Elton John's voice. It has transformed over the years. I had a growth spurt, and I was one of the tallest boys in the under-13 rugby team. But alas, that was the end, and I have remained five foot seven and a half inches ever after, and that half an inch is very important. My cap size was six and seven eighths, but I don't really know what that meant. I would have loved to have been a couple of inches taller, but that was not to be. Of course, my four sons are considerably taller than me. I can't really comment on the experiences of girls, but I hope they received more guidance than we did at school and at home. With only Sweaty Betty, the biology teacher, to provide any information, and that wasn't until we were in the fifth form, most of us were clueless. Roundy School was still an upholder of the belief that physical exercise, cross-country runs and team sports would reduce urges, and lots of homework would make sure that there wasn't any idle time for the devil to fill. This had about as much chance as King Canute telling the tide to go back, and we filled every moment thinking about girls. Even my love of music and performing was strongly tied to making myself desirable to girls and developing a fan base. All of these changes I took in my stride, but hair was the one that was a killer. Despite knowing it would come, the arrival of bodily hair was something that you didn't want to be the first to have, nor the last. Sport was the problem area as we had to have a bath, naked after rugby, or later a shower when they became available. These were times when you were vulnerable to others' gazes. This was bad enough when you looked just like them, but when you were different, that was a problem. Comments would be made and egos bruised after taunting and ribbing. Luckily, I was not the very first, but not long after and no attempt to hide evidence would succeed for long. During that second year, the balance changed, and it was those not yet sporting this fresh sign of manhood that suffered the jibes and the flicking of the wet towels. Fortunately, we all outgrow this phase, but back then we used to compare ourselves with other boys' development to determine our position in the pecking order of manhood. With the changes came the question of hygiene and teenage boys have a powerful aroma that any teacher entering a warm classroom towards the end of the day can testify is choking. 
teenage girls don't seem to notice, and I can only assume they lose their sense of smell for a few years. Mothers let their sons know, and deodorant is bought. Never doing things by halves, boys take to it with gusto. This is aided and abetted by advertisers who know how to win boys over. The right deodorant, copiously applied, can attract beautiful ladies, make these beauties uncontrollable with desire, and throw themselves at the spottiest, least attractive young man. Teenage boys believe this with a passion, and brute was more than liberally added to the natural bodily smells. For some reason, boys don't quite get that changing clothes, bathing and showering would have a far more beneficial effect, so they continue to drown themselves in pungent deodorant and sprays. To add insult to injury, becoming more self-aware is assailed by the eruption of pimples. I don't think anyone really avoids the dreaded spots, but some suffer more severely than others. I remember viewing each one with horror but I'm not sure that other people really noticed. For many of us, this was a difficult time, but a necessary one. No matter how hard it was for us, it was much harder for our parents, as they had to suffer us, our moods, irrational behaviour and unkindness towards them. I think most boys, or at least I did, spend the rest of our lives regretting what they said and did to their mothers. But being a boy... I can't speak for girls. If you enjoy my cup of tea tales, then you might like to know that two books are available. The first, A Cup of Tea Tales, The Early Years, and the second, Another Cup of Tea, The Teenage Years. They're both available on Amazon and on Kindle.